Hello there. Um, I am. So I am. This is. This is. I am Shane. This is Shane. Uh, just with a little a pre-episode note. Um, uh, you may have noticed there was no show last week. That was because if you've seen our social media, uh, you'll notice that that was the reason for that was that a good friend of both myself and Neil's um, passed away uh, very suddenly. And just the idea of putting out a silly podcast uh, just didn't seem right or appropriate or anything like that. So we didn't, and so we, we the the final episode of of the of the series is coming up directly after I stop talking now. Um, but uh, before we do that, I just wanted to say how much we're going to miss our friend Moira Averill Brady, who passed away very suddenly. Um, last week she was uh not only a good friend of ours in real life but also an incredibly talented uh funny uh fearless uh comedian and artist and performer and poet and writer and uh it's really it's it's such a massive loss in so many ways because she was really making a name for herself on the Dublin sort of uh, arts scene she was a regular on lots of different nights around Dublin and and one of the things that struck me after she after she passed away after the news broke that she had passed away was how many people who were on social media talking so warmly about her and people I had no idea people I knew independently I had no idea that they knew Moira or that that she had sort of uh, made such an impact she was only been in, in Dublin for about six and a half years um since she uh, she married our friend Gareth and I moved over, but in I've never seen anyone make such an impact in such a short space of time, both on a personal level but also on a creative level. Um, she was really singular in Dublin, and we actually had her on our most recent live night in Dublin in the Tivoli backstage only a few months ago, and she performed uh, a short set on the night and was absolutely hilarious. Many people told me afterwards that they were she was her favorite their favorite act of the night and she was really she's just i'm going to play a little excerpt from that performance now in a sec and you'll you'll get you'll get a sort of a an idea of of her her sort of unique voice and um it's just very hard to sort of wrap our heads around we only found out most of us only found out that she was ill uh basically a couple of days before she actually passed away so there's still a very difficult it's very difficult to actually get her head around, head around that she's actually gone. Um, but she would have been a she would have been a, a guest on the podcast uh, next season. We had slated her performance for for the show uh, at the start of next season, and uh, we were hoping to get her on for something a bit more in depth as well. But um, unfortunately, she's gone now, and it's very sad and very scary and very hard to understand or to come to terms with and our thoughts here are definitely with, with Gareth her husband and Andy and her sister and um, and that's it pretty much we're, we're going to miss you Moira and uh, and so before we start the show we're just going to play you a little excerpt from Moira's performance that night in the Tivoli backstage 
Um, so yeah, okay, so time to bring on our, our, the first act of the second half. Um, she is a, a comedian and uh, actor and a spoken word performer. And uh, she's originally from Rhode Island in America. That's right. Um, uh, she's one of the, uh, genuinely one of the funniest people I've met in real life. And very delighted to have her on stage. So please put your hands together for Moira Brady Averill. Thank you, Shane and Neil. Is my fly down? These highways to jeans, sometimes that happens, it just sort of slips to here. And there's nothing funnier than that, am I right? I'm just gonna leave that there. You can gaze at it whenever you need to. It's a little gift to you. Um, okay, so uh, did you did you hear that? Heard heard something. So funny because I, I, it brings me to my next point. Um, uh, I don't really care for males usually, and I'm sorry. Sounded strangely like a planted heckler. <laughs> All right, I'm ready. This last one's not. Um, it's kind of weird. It's sort of something I, I feel like it's the only thing I wrote on a month-long residency last year. A dick. <laughs> anyway, so I <laughs> just want to make sure that I read it to you. And some of you have heard it. You've heard it. Gareth hears it every night before bed. Can, when, you, <laughs> when you hear it, you're going to be like, oh my God, that'd be horrible. Like, time for your bedtime story <laughs> about how the earth is on fire and we're never going to have kids because of climate change. <laughs> Husband. <laughs> anyway, so this is the last thing I'm going to do. The giant American flags of Montauk hung for the 4th of July. There is a comfort in knowing that I'm here now. These symbols of lunacy are raised about the town by firemen. Big fire trucks, big ladders, big Ford pickups, large friendly arms. Nothing wrong at all here. Just hoisting a Brahm Denagian flag. Ho hum. Jonathan Swift experts, uh, maybe you could help me with the pronunciation on that word. We all know the one I'm talking about. Find some synonyms for flag. <clears throat> An infinitely vulgar beach towel. The larger the blanket, the more invisible the sin it covers. This tarp, whose hangers need not understand ground cover as its true talent. A canopy under which iced coffee is a birthright. Make wrongdoing unseen by smothering it in the largest, slickest rectangle of fabric. Suspend it in plain view for all to see. A tap, tippity tap, a tapestry so unavoidably large. 
how big the area of concealment must be. The tiny, oh, excuse me, the flag a tiny bulging suture in the scheme of things, covering an inflamed infection. Sure, let's have a parade then, shall we? Yes? Let's scare away the ghosts of our misdeeds. Let us amplify our pseudo-successes as proof of our exceptionalism. Let us overstate our large-scaled celebration. Let us distill this into a day of horns blaring in a line. Set the sky alight with a firefight's colorful illustration, our much-deserved pleasure. Everyone's favorite, save the shell-shocked veterans, save the shell-shocked victims, save the shell-shocked victims of their mortar fire. The guilt of wrong does not disappear into a suburb of itself. Brotherhood is a hiding place, but there is no cover, lar cover large enough. And I'll make that point again. Like some sort of 1960s activist. But there is no cover large enough. Okay? It has happened. We all know what it is. We did it and have done it. And it is not yet done. Moira Brady Averill, everyone. Another round of applause, please. This week's show is brought to you by Aiken Promotions, who are bringing David O'Doherty to Dublin, even though he lives in Dublin, but he is playing in Vicar Street on the 4th and 5th of November. Presumably, he will be commuting from his own home. Uh, to play both gigs uh, regardless they'll be fantastic he's an amazing stand-up always has been one of the best if not the best uh, around he uh, has a really really great uh, album um, called uh, Jokes Ahoy or Giggle Me Timbers which was released on the uh, Trust Me I'm a Thief record label which is an amazing record label that released music by Cy Schroeder and the Redneck Manifesto and Jape and loads of great people and David O'Doherty I met him once in Moscow when we played a gig there and I was massively intimidated by him and did not really chat to him because I'm a big fan um, but if you like me are a big fan of David O'Doherty but do not have the guts to talk to him in Dublin if you're from Dublin or in the commuting uh, belt of Dublin um, but are willing to pay money to see him and to hear him tell some of his fantastic jokes then I would recommend that you go to the gig that he's playing in Vicar Street on either the 4th or the 5th or both if you want to bring different sets of friends or you know like a partner on one night and your parents on the other night there's lots of combinations the point is the tickets are available on vicarstreet.com and uh, yeah, that, that's an ad that's an ad for that now there's a there's a podcast now welcome oh, yeah. oh dear what was that sorry are you, are you going to do the intro I'm, I'm going to start off anyway you did the ad so I should I should start off I should be the next voice you hear Welcome to uh, episode number 28. Is it 28? Oh, sorry. Now you want my help. I just want you to tell me what number episode this is. No. 
Okay, I'm pretty sure it's 28, episode 28, our season finale of this second uh, series. Uh, I felt, I said season, and then I felt a little bit self-conscious about saying season. Because it's in Americanism? Because it's Americanism. Um, That's alright. Yeah, but there's a Limmy sketch about it, so, I don't know. Um, Anyway, yeah. what sketch? Uh, There's uh, Limmy. What's Limmy? Limmy, You know Limmy show? No. You do. Well, we can talk about it afterwards. Okay. It's not reflecting. It's not going to reflect well on you that you don't know who Limmy is. Oh, well, maybe I'm encouraging people to check Limmy out. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's a fuck. Yeah, it's season finale of of of, of the show. So yeah, we've we've done twelve episodes, and then we're going to take a little break, and then we're going to be coming back when you know, we've got a date. On the twenty sixth of October, we have a special. We can't tell you what it is, but it is a very very special episode. The reason it is top secret will become apparent. When you listen to the episode on the 26th. exactly, yeah, and uh, in the meantime, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna put out on, on our feed uh, sort of classic episodes, best ofs, yeah. Uh, so yeah, cool. But anyway, that's what we'll, 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 I'm sure we'll talk about that at the end. Um, but but before that, we've got a, we've got an episode. Yeah, it's a really great episode, and I'm I'm really pissed off that I had a, a minor go-karting accident yesterday I'm in a lot of pain because I can't quite muster the enthusiasm that I should be able to be, but, but you had a go-karting accident what happened yeah, I just told you this yeah no oh, we're, sorry, we're, we're on air now well Shane I'll tell you yeah exactly uh, some bastard drove into the ba- back of me in go-karting and I went about 10 foot into a wall that's why you doing go-karting that's I mean we just talked about this, and even for this like bit of theatre, we don't need to do this. Who's this go karting? Yeah, but like for the, private reasons, the podcast audience weren't present for a little chat five minutes ago. Can Thank you, God can, for their for their benefit. Can we not make this seem? I was up in Liverpool. <sighs> God, who cares? It's who cares? It, it would have been just easier if you'd just gone gone on with it. Just gone on with the shtick of. Let's talk about what's happening in our life. <laughs> okay. I hate talking about what's on our life. It's like you talking about your flat that time. I thought that was I thought that was one of the best bits of podcasting we've ever done. <laughs> I know you did. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, okay. So, so when we so about a, a year ago, almost a year ago to the day, probably now, um, we we did three show. Well, we did three shows um, in in the One Hundred Club in 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 London, and that's a lot of the a lot of this uh, seasons uh, materials come from the recordings made on on, on those three nights. So, the One Hundred Club is what the show today is all about. Absolutely, it's. Um it's hard to get this across, isn't it, Shane? Because, like, you know, we, we did those shows there and you don't really realise how important that music venue is to at least four generations of music fans or, you know, certain bands until you go there. But we tried to capture that by, by meeting Jeff, the owner of the Honda Club, yeah, having him talk through, you know, what the club has meant for the last, like... 60, 70 years or whatever. It's, like, it's, it's, an, it's unlike any place. Like... I was up in Liverpool and I saw the Cavern Club which is basically like a team pub do you know what I mean there aren't a lot of those music venues where you know Metallica played when they were in their early 20s or Mm. and it's the same place that the Kinks had a residency or Oasis played one of their first big London shows and it's just an amazing venue you can really feel it when you go down there I mean like when I sort of when I was uh you know, eighteen or nineteen, I got into punk in you know, like in in a big way, and that was I, all everything I read about you know Sex Pistols, Clash. I was like the, the One Hundred Club was at the center of a huge amount of it, and so 
but but having now listened to your chat with Jeff, there's so much more. Like it was going years before that. Yeah, like post World War Two blues, jazz. You know, bear in mind, like back then, that was kind of a that was like grime is now. Do you yeah. know what I mean? So there were people going to cafes at like midnight on yeah. a on a Friday night to see these. Subsequently what we understand to be absolutely amazing blues and jazz musicians a lot of them are dead and gone and the only memories are on the wall and venues like the 100 club you yeah know? and it's got now it does like all nighters for uh, northern cell nights every weekend and it's just got it's gone through this at least different lives where it's been a big part of different types of music and and i think you you, you talked to jeff and you got a really good sense of that i'd uh, like jeff's a hero i'd love to do we were talking about this before but i'd love to do more episodes with people like that that have because like fuck knows how you're supposed to make a like a life for yourself as a musician or a, a, a per, or an artist or a filmmaker or a writer you know mm-hmm. and there are also people that are running clubs running venues and or running magazines or little breweries you know that are that are hustling to try and make things like this work and it's important to hear their stories because it's a peculiar existence and it's um Jesus is interesting. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, here it is. This is a uh, your chat with Jeff from the One Hundred Club, one of the most iconic and fantastic music venues in London. This is a modern world. This is a modern world. My name's Jeff Halton and I'm the owner of the 100 Club uh, in London. Cool, all right. Do you want to tell us a bit about the club? Yeah, um, it was um, put to me a few years back that we're now the oldest independent live music venue anywhere on the planet. Um, and I've not seen, I've actually <laughs> gone out, uh, I've, I've dined out on that for quite a long time and no one's actually questioned it, so it must be true. And there's been live music here since 1942. Um, it's been various different names from London, uh, the London Jazz Club to jazz shows to humps, and it finally settled on the 100 Club when my dad named it the 100 Club in 1964 when he bought a shareholding here because it's at 100 Oxford Street. Um, but my grandmother had been a shareholder um, before then. She got involved in the club from 1958. It's been in the family for that long now and in fact there will be there will have been live music on oxford street uh, at 100 oxford street for 75 years next year it'll be the 75th anniversary in 2017 of live music at 100 oxford street wow and how long have you been involved i've been here for 32 years which seems a huge well it is it's a lifetime isn't it um and um to be honest with you it's just the most you know obviously i've a huge amount of affection for it because so much of my family is involved in this I mean I came down here for the first time I think when I was four I used to come down my dad used to open Christmas Eve and then come in on Christmas morning hungover and cashing up from the night before and me and my brother used to sort of bottle up for him uh, for the following day Boxing Day when we reopened while my mum was making Christmas dinner and whatever so and I had my sixth birthday down here, I remember that, and there was my dad's mate, one of his oldest mates, who's dead now, a guy called Bill Nile. Um, and I remember he got up and just said, there's a very special guest here tonight, I want you to give a big warm welcome to Jeff Horton, who's six years old today. And I remember I just wanted the floor to open up and just uh, disappear into it. But yeah, um, 
It's been, this is probably the longest memory I have of anything in my life. That's how far back it goes, yeah. Wow. And why don't you tell us what it was like in your early days when you, you started working here? Um, right, well, I started in 84, and I remember the first show I ever did, um, and I was just working behind the bar then. I was, my dad made me sort of bar manager, even though I had no experience whatsoever. I think he just thought that the losses he, was, he had at the time would just disappear because his son wouldn't be, you know, nicking money from the till or whatever, I don't know. But it was, um, uh, yeah, Ken Collier's uh, jazz band, um, and then the following night, there was a punk night with the Angelic Upstarts, and then I realised very early on um, that the music policy of this club was unlike any other, um, you know, doing those two gigs back to back. And initially, um, because mum and dad had moved me down to Dorset, I used to travel up on a Monday, work right the way through the week, go home on a Saturday and then I had a, a house at some point that my first place that I bought so we were putting in pipe work and putting down floors and God knows what and then coming back to London to work whatever but there was just something about the place um, which just uh, was magical you know um, and I then realised that this was going to be a meeting place for some of the biggest heroes I've ever had in my life my very first one was probably Steve Marriott of the Small Faces who growing up as a and seeing Tin Soldier is still one of those massively iconic images in my head from Top of the Pops in 1967, I think it was. And then seeing Steve Marriott with a band called Packet of Three here about 1985 and there being like 20 people here and thinking, how is this possible? This guy is just one of, and he was. I mean, even with such a small audience, his voice, his, his, his guitar playing, Everything about him was amazing. And suddenly seeing him here, and I remember being really nervous about meeting him and talking to his wife. And I remember saying to her, you know, don't tell Steve this, but my mum reckons the only way she could get me to the barber was if I promised I'd come out looking like Steve Marriott when I was about seven years old. So that was the first inkling um, that actually, it was almost possible for dreams to be met here really and to meet people. And I think, without exaggerating, I've probably met most of my music heroes. There's two or three that um, I, know I haven't got around to meeting, but certainly most of the guys from the punk era that I grew up um, in and absolutely loved, I've met most of them, and it's just been an amazing experience, really. So did you go to gigs as a kid here then in the 70s? Um, no, because my mum and dad had moved us down um, to Bournemouth in like 72 when I was about 11. So I started going to sort of um, gigs in around that area, around sort of Bournemouth, where we, and that's where I saw all the original punk bands, The Clash and Elvis Costello and Sham 69 and people like that in a place called Chelsea Village, which is long gone now. Um, and the Bournemouth Winter Gardens is where I saw The Clash. And um, then suddenly, uh, because obviously there was no blogs, there was no internet, there was no mobile phones, communication, you know, we sort of found out three, four months after everyone else in the country what was going on in London. And um, I went to see all these punk bands because I'd started reading about them in the NME. And then, of course, I read about the 100 Club and I just went, Dad, you know, why haven't you told me about this? And he just went to me, because they're nothing but a pain in the ass. They've caused me nothing but trouble. So, yeah, well, we had the incident, which is really well known, um, when a glass was thrown 
a band uh, during a punk night here in 76, which shattered against that middle pillar and a slither of glass flew out and went into a girl's eye and blinded her in one eye. And um, my dad and the promoter, Ron Watts, uh, were summoned by the girl's mum to meet them um, here at the club where she asked, you know, understandably, how come my daughter's gone to a, a gig at your venue and has come home blind in one eye. My dad actually banned punk after that and said it was the single most difficult moment he'd ever had in like 36 years of working here. But, you know, um, it came back in the second form of punk, you know, uh, with bands like UK Subs, um, GBH and all these guys. And actually, you know, punk was an amazing thing. I mean, there was that one, you know, obviously not very pleasant incident here, but as I've often said since, without wanting to explain it away or justify because you can't justify something like that, but if you put 500 people in a room, there's always going to be one idiot, whether they're football fans or they're punks or they're skinheads or whatever, you know, it's always going to happen. Um, but yeah, um, because of the 100 Club, really, and it's punk legacy, that's why I grew to love it and went to see all these amazing gigs elsewhere and then saw most of the second wave of punk here, which was amazing. What did your dad make of the music? He hated it. Um, and to be fair, he was actually very open-minded. When my dad took the club over in 1964, it was primarily a jazz club. It was jazz seven nights a week. And he was the guy that actually went, you know what, we're going to have to change our music policy. We're going to have to expand. We're going to have to start doing different stuff because there were a hundred jazz clubs in Soho and the West End alone, just jazz clubs. And if you look at... My dad's kept a scrapbook with loads and loads of um, reviews of gigs, you know, um, that, were, that were held here. And when he got bored putting the, the, the cuttings into a scrapbook, he just kept the papers. And if you o open, you know, the Sa Sounds Enemy, any of those papers at the time, and uh, Melody Maker, and you look in the classifieds at the back, it's extraordinary. There's like 200 live music venues. So my dad went, right, there's 100 jazz clubs, 200 live music venues, we need to be a bit different. We're going to sort of shake things up. So he had residences here with the Stones, with the Who, uh, when they were the high numbers, uh, with the Kinks. Um, and he, he, he got the residency with the Kinks four months. He had four monthly residences here. Um, and he said the first time they were here, they got about 50 people. Second time, it was about 200. Third time, it had crept up to around 500. The very next time was the day you really got me went to number one and he said there were people just queuing around the block to come and see him but yeah he to be honest with you is probably the person that needs to be credited with for the club's very very varied music policy no ways and so the stones had a residency here as well didn't yeah, they? yeah 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 they had a residency here for about six months back in 63 64 something like that yeah they did yeah well, i was thinking maybe we should take a, a i know it's difficult to do this on a podcast but like a, a little walk around yeah 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 walls. We'll start with punk, as always. So here, this is one of my favourite photographs ever. So you've got John, Johnny Rotten, and uh, I had this very same conversation, actually, with Bobby Gillespie um, a couple of years back. We're walking around the park with our dogs the other week, and he said to me, Jeff, that photograph you've got, you've got John on the wall with John Lydon, 
he said, and he's wearing like his winkle pickers and he's got this jumper on with a, like a tie over the top. And he said, you can just see his face is contorted as he's shouting into the microphone and there's all these sort of like pint pots from like the Sweeney on the front of the stage. And he said to me, somebody put that very same photograph up on the notice board at Glasgow Arts College when he was there. And he said, I took one look at it, he said, and I didn't know who the people were or where it was, he said, but I knew I had to find out. And that's what sort of got him into um, making music and stuff, was, was, that, was why I knew it was that important, was through that photograph. And I love that photograph, I just think, because if you look at the back here, there's probably, what, 40 people? This was probably the first or the second of the monthly residences they did before the big punk festival in 76. And, and what I love on the back here, which you can see better over at the other end of the poster, and all those are probably people like Kenny Ball and his jazz band and stuff like that, which is, which, you know, is amazing when actually on the stage on that night of the Sex Pistols. Amazing. So they're in the middle of this punk residency, the jazz bands are playing on the other days? Yeah, on the other days, yeah. And then if you look over here, this is 1987. Uh, this is one of the most memorable nights of lots of memorable nights, the night Metallica played here. And I remember they were doing a warm-up for Donington and um, there used to be a heavy metal record shop in Walker's Court in Soho. And about two days before the show, which was hush, 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 put a great big Masters of Puppets poster up on the wall saying Thursday Night Hunter Club. So I got here, we had a beer delivery that morning and I got here at seven o'clock and there was already about 20 people outside and I thought, blimey, word must have got out because I didn't know about the poster at the time. And then by about 11 o'clock, this policeman rushed into the club and went, who the bloody hell's in charge of this place? And I went, me, why? He said, there's 8,000 people outside the club. He said, the buses can't get in, the, the, the taxis can't move down Oxford Street. What the bloody hell do you think you're doing? So he then went out and I remember, he said to me, what's the capacity here? And I said, oh, 500, I think it was at the time. So he went back and he counted 500 people and he put his arm between number 500 and 501 and went right all of you go home but of course everyone just went ah, you know and I think there was something like you know Urban Myth says there was something like 15,000 people on Oxford Street trying to get into that gig that night it was just unbelievable yeah the picture is wedged for people yeah 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 and I'll tell you something they brought this massive PA in you know because I don't think the club actually the club didn't have a PA whenever we didn't have jazz any rock and roll bands, they used to have to bring their own PA with them. So Metallica, you know, brought this huge Pantechnican and sort of the stuff that they were going to go to Donington with, they offloaded about a 20th of it and brought it into the club. But, and it, they were here all day setting up, and I'll tell you what, it was still one of the most pure PAs I've ever heard. And this is like 1984. It was like the most massive PA and yet they probably had it on number two or something like that. And it was just amazing. Just amazing. Stick this in, make sure All right, what else we got over here? So, another legend, Chuck Berry, who played here about five, six years ago. And um, that was a real coup for the club. I mean, you know, they don't come much bigger than Chuck Berry, really. And. I remember he was having trouble getting some of his, holding some of the notes on the guitar, and he said something like, look, you know, at the end of the day, I'm 86, whatever it was, and actually, I'm Chuck Berry, so. <laughs> yeah, amazing. 
Uh, who's out there? That's Paul Simonon of The Clash, which was taken in 76. And on the photograph next to him is Joe. And then, you know, this is kind of what the club's about, really. So you then come down and there's that amazing photograph by Elaine Constantine um, of the Northern Soul All-Nighters down here, which has been going now for over 35 years. In fact, we've got the anniversary on Saturday. I think it's the 35th or 36th anniversary. Um, it's the longest running club in London. And then up there to the left, absolute legend champion Jack Dupree, like blues and jazz pianist and an amazing guy. It's just some of the stories and just unbelievable. And then over here, you've got everyone from Kings of Leon to Queens of the Stone Age. Um, to oh, the Stones there, right? Yeah, Rolling Stones there, yeah. Spiritualised, who played here, amazing show that Converse put on uh, in 2012. And one of the guys at Converse said that they approached Spiritualised and they kind of went, you know, listen, we're doing this thing called Represent, nine shows, nine different genres, would you do it? And they just kind of went, no, we don't really work with sort of brands. And they went, well, we've got Toots and the Matles. And he went, have you? No, we're still not going to do it. And then they went, well, Blur are doing it. And Jason said, no, I'm not interested. And then they said, well, we've also got Paul Weller. And he went, really? All right, we'll do it if we can support him. And that apparently is how we got... And I remember seeing that show, Spiritualized Supporting Paul Weller. I mean, just that's genius. <laughs> it's just amazing. And, um, and then you've got the great Muddy Waters there as well, um, which is, you know an amazing thing as well so yeah do you want to take us there backstage yeah yeah of course yeah 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 so um so um describe maybe what we're seeing here so this is the backstage and this is amazing um compared to what we used to have before it was just like um, there'd be a few barrels to the right hand side and there was a partition wall here. And then literally the artists had, what's that? Three foot by about 15 foot to sit in. And there was, you know, it was damp and everything else. So when this got built, it's just amazing. And as you can see from the walls, all the bands have put various signatures and, and, and certain scripts. This guy here, Joshua Whitehouse played here with his band. He was the guy that played the lead in the Northern Soul film um, that was put out by Elaine Constantine a couple of years back. And there's all kinds of other people here. And amazing photographs Manny. as well, you know. Is that when Primal Scream played? Yeah, that's Manny, when he played with Primal Scream. Uh, there's obviously the, the famous Sex Pistols photograph, which was taken uh, their second coming before the Filthy Luca tour. And they did the big press launch down here. That was in 80. Six, I think that was. Um, sorry, 96. What am I talking about? That was 96, yeah. Because I remember we thought we were going to get them, but it was Euro 2000 and... Uh, sorry, Euro 96 in England. And the day they were going to do it was the day that England were playing Holland and they just pulled out because they're all football fans. And also they wanted to make sure that they're on the front and back page of every paper. <laughs> so it never happened, which is a real shame. But yeah, um, yeah, no, it's... It, it look, almost looks like a film set version of a backstage area. It does. It does, but it's actually for real. But I think, yeah, if you were going to build one for a film set, this is probably what you base it on, I'd imagine, <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Why don't you tell us a little bit about running the club? Like, obviously, for the last couple of decades, you have a you have a very particular viewpoint on you know what kind of stuff you should do, what you shouldn't do. Yeah, I think I've always tried to run the club in the way, or continue it on from the way my dad did. Now, I think there is a danger that you might be perceived as being old-fashioned, but. I, I genuinely think that there is a movement out there now that's just got bored with health and safety, risk assessment. Uh, I mean, I know when I go to a lot of other venues, you know, apart from the small independent ones, there's something a bit sterile and a bit sort of dull about everything. I mean, I don't really want to see massive gaps between uh, the, the artist and the crowd and that space being filled full of people in high-vis jackets in case something happens um, and I just again I was talking to Bobby Gillespie a few um, weeks ago and he was saying to me you know when did it happen that you know you play at a festival and suddenly the audience which is the most important thing that you want to interact with as a front man is suddenly half a football pitch away you know what and actually the whole thing about live music is bands been in, able to interact with an audience? There's been a number of people that have played here, Bobby himself, I think, who've said if you can't play the 100 Club, you're never, ever going to make it because you are right on top. The crowd are right on top of you here. And basically, it's, a, it's an acid test for any band. And not, I'm not just saying at the 100 Club, I'm talking about all grassroots music venues, all small music venues. That's where you cut your teeth. That isn't just where you learn to play your songs, it's where you learn to engage with an audience. And all the best bands, rock and roll bands, all of them engage, you know. And even people like jazz bands, you know, you've got to have a front man that can actually stop for five minutes and tell a few funny stories and be comfortable, you know, in his own skin while he talks to people. And that's where you learn to do that in places like this. And it's also why you know, whenever anyone comes and plays here and they talk about putting a barrier, and I go, no, you know, if you're going to do it, you've got to do it the 100 Club way. There was one exception, that was Paul McCartney in 2010. And I remember Barry's, um, uh, Barry, Paul's um, manager, just said to me, he's a smashing bloke, you know, we were talking about logistics, and he said, oh, yeah, we're loading's going to be such and such a time, and then we'll put the barrier. And I went, no, 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 we're having a barrier. He said, Jeff, but it's Paul McCartney. I went, I don't care. It's, it's, it's the 100 Club. He's got to do it at the 100 Club. And he said to me, Jeff, you probably don't realise, but it's very close when Paul plays here to the anniversary of John Lennon's assassination. He said, and when that happens, we get every single nutcase in the world emailing us or texting us or whatever, saying they're going to do this, that and the other. So Paul McCartney playing at your club is a really good thing. Paul McCartney dying in your club is a really bad thing. I think we need to put the barrier in. So I went, OK, that's a fair enough point. We'll put it in. And, um, yeah, that was with Barry Marshall, his manager. And um, the other really funny thing as well, because that was an amazing event, that, that Paul McCartney event. I mean, as my friend who was here with me at the time said, you know, it's still true now in 2010, that would have been. You don't get bigger than a Beatle. And I remember his, they all loaded in. Um, the night before and his piano tech this American guy he said to me uh, Jeff uh, Paul's going to play your piano tomorrow and I went oh man that's amazing are you serious he went well it might be a good thing for you but I can tell you that's the worst fucking piano he's played for 40 years you need to go and get me a Hoover and I remember <laughs> 
and I had to go. Well, this was on the busiest shopping day of the year. It's like the Friday before Christmas, before Christmas. I had to go up to John Lewis, wait for an hour in the electrical department to get a Hoover, wait for another hour to pick it up, and then bring it back and give it to this guy. And by this time, he'd already got it in about 15 pieces. And I don't know what he did to it. I mean, he changed all the felts on the hammers and stuff, and I think he changed a few strings and he cleaned it all up because it had been, you know, used by jazzers with about seven or eight pints lined up on it previously. <laughs> and that piano has hardly gone, gone out of tune since. I mean, it's the best 60 quid or whatever it was paid for a Hoover ever. It was just brilliant. <laughs> all right, well, you should show us a few more of these pictures. Yeah, so, um, well, there's Paul McCartney there. That's the actual poster for the show. And there he is again. And that was an amazing show. It really was. And I remember he got up, because we were, at the time, it was looking like we might fold because of, you know, um, the sheer cost of running somewhere on some of the most expensive real estate anywhere. And um, I remember him getting up at the end and saying, Mr. 100, you have to keep this place going because it's really, really cool. I mean, you know, he just completely got it like every other band that's played, he just completely got it. And I remember Barry saying to me before the gig, he was actually quite nervous. And I went, how can he be nervous? I said, he's just come back from South America where he's been playing in front of 80,000 people. And he went, ah, but he can't see anyone here. He's got 300 people all staring at him and he's just not used to that. And he was, I've got to say, he was fantastic. He was absolutely amazing. So, what else we got? We got Della Soul here, yep. Toots, Paul Toots, Weller, Paul Weller. Uh, Nas. Nas, yep, um, Santa, Santa Gold, Gold. Yeah. UK Subs. These are all shows that we did on that amazing night during the Olympics. Represent Blur, of course. Is Johnny Johnny Depp playing with Alice Cooper? Yep, um, and that was 2011. <laughs> and again, Alice's manager rang us and said, "Look." Alice is supposed to be doing something uh, with one of the British metal bands, forget which one it was, and it's been cancelled. But before we fly back to the States, he wants to know if you've got any dates in the next week, because he's always wanted to play there. And I went, are you serious? And he went, yeah, I am. So I said, OK, I'll find something. So we did. And um, I came walking down the stairs, and I walked past this guy and walked into the office, and Alice's manager was in there, and I went, I've just walked past this guy who looks just like Johnny Depp. And he went, it is Johnny Depp. He said he's doing the last two numbers of his show. I went, you've got to be joking. So... Was any good? Oh, man, it was amazing. And I remember as well, Alice, just being an amazing guy, just saying, look, we're not, you know, we haven't brought the guillotine. We're just doing a pedal to the metal rock and roll show. But the snake's here. And I went, where? <laughs> he went in the office. And it was in a basket <laughs> in the office. And um, uh, it was just the most amazing show. It was just, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. The and snake enjoy it? Uh, the, the snake looked very lively when he finally got that out of his basket, yeah. <laughs> he did, yeah. So if we go up here, you've got like um, these... Oh, they're great. I love those pictures. iconic pictures of like the punk here and stuff. And that photograph there of Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck, that was taken the night we did the tribute to Ian Stewart, that was the sixth stone who died of a heart attack back in 86, I think it was. Yeah. And um, yeah, that was an amazing night because there were those two got up and jammed with the stones. And there again, um, my dad, I wasn't here. I'd flown off to Corfu, not realizing um, what was going on. And then I went, went to a little taverna to pick up some stuff for breakfast and staring back at me with a previous day's paper and there was on the front page of the sun, I think it was, or the mirror, one of the red tops, 
It's a picture of Mick Jagger with that big hundred behind him. And I just thought, am I going mad? Am I, is, this, is this really happened? And I've missed it. I just couldn't believe it, yeah. And like everyone from, you know, rock and roll, uh, from, you know, the, the A-list of rock and rolls at the t rollers at the time, they're all here. I mean, it was just like unbelievable. All got up and jammed with them as well. Just amazing. Is that where the Pete Townsend photograph was from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Pete Townsend was here as well, yeah. Yeah, that's also. And then you got all these other amazing shows, like stuff that we did with the Libertines, which were just, that was one, an amazing show that night as well. has been mental busy. Oh, well, the Libertines show, that was the night we decided we had to get air conditioning because it was unbelievably hot. I mean, I'd, I'd known it to be hot, and I don't know whether it's an environmental thing or maybe because there's more refrigeration or there was at the time than when I first started working here, blowing stuff out. And, but it, the heat in here was unbelievable. And if you look up onto the ceiling, you see those little black marks up there? Oh, yeah. That's basically tar that's been blown out of people's lungs <laughs> over the last 70 fucking years. And it started <laughs> melting. And all these people started walking out with like great big marks all over their clothes and stuff like that. And I thought, right, uh, we could be in serious trouble here. <laughs> We need to get some aircon, and so that, that was the night of the Libertines gig. We decided to get air conditioning in it. So they're the last lads to be covered in tar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was yeah, it was amazing. That's amazing. And you've got two bars, right? Got yeah, yeah. We got um, two bars. The, the, the main one, um, which is always open, obviously, and this one, which you know, if we're going to be really busy, um, because you know, that just it splits the crowd more than anything else. And there's the white stripes there beside the stage. Yeah, that was another amazing night as well. I think that's, that picture looks like when they just started. It right? was. Um, that was their very first show in the UK, and I got talking to Jack White and just introduced myself as I do with most bands. And I said, you know, it's amazing, you know, that you, you've chosen us. And he said, oh, it's, 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 you've been chosen, he said, because when we were growing up and we were listening to... Um, blues which we loved he said the one record I loved more than any was that album that we've got on the wall over there by Sunhouse it's called John the Revelator and it was recorded live at the 100 Club in I think 1968 yeah. and Jack said to me that he listened to that album 24 hours a day for months on end and he said if it wasn't for that album he said there probably wouldn't be a White Stripes we were probably formed because of that album so with Sunhouse on the front cover in front of that 100 Club stage and with it being recorded down there, it seemed the most natural place if we ever got big enough to play outside of America to come and play, which is why they played here that night. Amazing, the photograph is so iconic as well. Yeah. I had to stick that up on online. Yeah. And you got the horrors, you got, what else have we got here, Pete Townsend. Graham Coxon. Oh yeah. The horrors. Um, handsome family from America who are just oh, yeah. like amazing. Um, they finally got a bit of commercial recognition um, after their, one of their songs was chosen as the theme tune for True Detective oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. last year. And they are an amazing band. Pete Molinari is, is there as well as more Libertines photographs. I think that's Jesse Fuller, uh, nice. old blues guy from, what does that say on there? 1960, yeah, yeah Jesse Fuller, yeah. Three... F uh, uh, what was that band, Japanese band, five, six, seven, eight. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, didn't they do the theme tune to a Tarantino, Tarantino film? film. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. did. Yeah. 
Yeah. And there's another great photograph of Metallica here in like... Um, Jeez, they look like they're 19. I know, yeah, yeah. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're right beside the jacks. Do you want to tell us about the toilet graffiti? The famous yeah, toilet graffiti? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, um, it's interesting. Because one of the guys that was running a yeah, there was a guy that was running um probably can't repeat some of this shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a guy that was running a sort of all nighter, like a solo all nighter, who thought it, it his crowd wouldn't like it, so he asked if they if we could or if he could paint it over. So he spent the weekend before his show painting the toilets for us, but um, it gets written over straight. It gets away. written over straight away again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, some odd stuff on there, but hey. <laughs> Oh god! In the in I saw on the men's toilet there's a fuck the system I'm self in self employed that graffiti yeah. that's amazing. <laughs> um, I was thinking I might do you want to sit down for a second? Sure. Just pick your brain about a few different bits and bobs. Um, there's a similar situation in Ireland with music venues and like cultural spots. So I was wondering whether you could give. You know, give me your opinion, having run this place for so long and it being in the family for so long, on the importance of spaces like this. Uh, Neil, I, I can't put a strong enough emphasis on it. I mean, I've worked very closely um, with the mayor, um, the previous mayor, and his music task force and um, the music venue trust, because I feel so passionately about places like this. I mean, obviously this is very special to me for all the reasons that we've spoken about earlier on, but all grassroots music venues are important, whether it's the Lexington and Islington or it's the old Blue Last or whatever. This is the very crux of what our society, in my opinion, is based on. I've, I've done, I, I did some research and I found some amazing facts in my role with these other groups. And one of the things that I found out was this little tiny group of island of ours still sells one in every seven records that are either bought or downloaded, one in seven around the world. I mean, that is absolutely staggering. Music is in our DNA, you know. We're not a cafe and fucking skinny latte society. We're not, you know, we're trying to be turned into one and everyone likes one now and again. But for these places to be sacrificed for more and more of these type, you know, I just, and everything else, to me, it's just utter sacrilege, you know. I, I, and, the thing is, it does so many things, you know, it's obviously a place where people can come and see bands, but it's a release for kids. One of my biggest bugbears is people bringing all these things in about noise and, and shutting places down. You know, I've got a lab myself. I know how much testosterone there is running around his body. And I remember, this is where I used to get rid of mine, you know, when I was growing up. I was at football matches and it was at gigs. And actually, if there's nowhere for these kids to go, what are they going to do? We already live in a world where we're surrounded with notices saying no, no ball games, no skateboarding, no bikes, no this, no that. 
and actually these kids have got to get rid of it somehow because it, it's natural so if they can come down here and they can live as I said earlier on I just suggested earlier on a proper gigging experience which is what I try and give people and I try and replicate what I went to myself and although as I said earlier it might sound like uh, I might sound like my dad here not everything that changes not everything that's modern is necessarily good there's this perception that everything that comes in everything that's new everything that's really really quick is good and it's not and I, and that's been pointed out to me by loads and loads of younger people who just email out the blue and go we went to see so-and-so at your gig last night it was amazing I did stuff in your venue that I've been thrown out of other venues for and I've gone, well, you weren't dilling the toilets, were you? And they go, no, 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 nothing like that, but we were stage diving. And again, you know, there's just this sort of malignant presence now in a lot of venues of sort of big brother, you know, high-vis jackets, everyone stay in order. And it's just, music isn't like that. Music is something that you just want to let rip. You just want to, you know, let loose and just... You know, that's how you get rid of all your energy as you're a kid. And actually, even at my age, I still want to do that. You know, I don't kind of want to sit politely in a chair if I'm going to watch a punk band or a metal band or whatever it is I want to go and see, or if I want to go and see the specials or any of those bands that really move me. I don't want to be sat in a fucking chair. I want to be able to sort of engage with the band. And this is what places like this still do. And it's a really rare thing because I think when a lot of bands move up to that next level, that kind of disappears, you know. And um, I just... The other thing as well is that without places like this, the live music industry through festivals, it raises something like 3.7 billion, right, for the treasury. It's a huge, huge amount of money, right? It's not insignificant at all. But where are those acts, those headline acts of the future going to come from if there aren't places like this anymore? Where are they going to come from? Because you can't keep putting out retrospective, you can't keep asking retrospective acts, no matter how good they may have been, to still be headlining festivals 20, 25, 30 years on. Because people are going to suddenly stop paying that 200 quid or whatever it is that they pay to go to a festival. They're not going to do it anymore. So it's massively important. And the other thing in terms of London uh, centric is, and, and I've often said this, if people in power in government wherever if they genuinely believe that people are coming to London and it'll be the same in Liverpool and Manchester and all the other great cities and Dublin and and Edinburgh you know it's not an English thing at all any of the great British cities right and Irish cities if the people who run those places if they think people are only going there because they want to see in London's case the House of Parliament and Big Ben or Dublin or Liverpool Manchester equivalent they're deluded beyond belief. What all these cities have in common is this amazingly rich arts and music heritage. That's what people come over here for. And I know, because I employ loads and loads of people from all over the world that have been behind this bar, and I know they can't afford to go out and do stuff on the money that they earn from here, and because everything's so expensive, everything they earn goes in rent. The reason they're in London and they don't have any money is because they feel they need to be here just to capture what London's about and the biggest problem that we'll face that we'll all face as Londoners and as as Britons and and, and Irish as well if we allow this continued gentrification of our cities people are going to stop coming and there's going to be a huge economic black hole if that happens and believe me there are hubs already all over Europe now 
from uh, Berlin to Vienna to Budapest now, who are just ready to pick up the slack. Whatever we don't want, they're all going, come over here, we'll, we'll have you. Or, you know, and I can see there, there being a time when you know, some of the best festivals that we have here, for instance, and venues, will just uproot and go and re-establish themselves somewhere else. I, th I think that's what will happen. Well, all, you know, the, all these other places too are getting subsidies and more than that, they, they're, they're, they're getting help in lots of different ways from the local authority and from national government because... Which is right and proper. Right? Exactly. And also they recognise that there is a worth to that particular country by doing that. Whereas we here have this really antiquated um, way of thinking that people like me are doing the devil's work. I mean, how else can you, how else can you reason why we are subjected still to conditions that were put on our license in 1964? It's now 2016. So, the world has changed in every conceivable way. I'm sure in 1964, on my street, there were probably only about four cars on it, right? But somehow, licensing seems to operate in a parallel universe that's completely different from the rest of us. And it's just, until that mindset changes, you know, we, none of us who, who are in the Music Venue Trust are saying, oh, you should be funding us by X amount. But actually, what would be good is if they just turn around and went, actually, do you know what? We need to take a lot of these fucking um, conditions off your license and that actually allow you to operate. Because I'm pretty sure in any other industry, it would be considered a restriction of trade, and I don't think you're allowed to do that. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird, weird thing, and it, it does, you know, to many people who are in certain positions in society and in government, whatever, I do genuinely, I always have done, I've felt that they think we're doing the devil's work, and it's mad, you know. People come here to have a good time. So if you just sum up your approach to running this venue and your place in music, what would you, what would you say it is? I think... It's really important that, you know, um, places like this stay. And, and for me personally, I want to continue, whether it's a jazz night or it's a mod night or it's a covers band or it's a punk or a metal night or a reggae night or, you know, um, a grime night, whatever we might be doing, and we cover up everything. There's nothing off limits here. That people come here and they go away thinking, I'm going to go to more live gigs because that was fucking great, you know. And that's how, when I go to see a gig, that's how I want to see it. And I'm, I haven't got the proof, but I'm pretty certain that a huge percentage of people who come here, whether they're punks or they're metalheads or they're whatever, I'm sure they all go away and they go, that was fucking great. I really enjoyed that because actually no one was bothering me. I can see the band. I haven't got a load of, you know, heavies. <laughs> wanting to throw me out, whatever, you know, and actually, uh, you know, our security guys, they're told, you know, by me, listen, before you, you know, just have a word, because 19, I'm a great believer in that human spirit, I, I honestly think if you just go, you need to just, you know, yeah, people do, you know, very few people are that stupid or that ignorant that they just carry on as normal, you know, communication is such a massive thing, it's really, really important. Cool, and is there anything else that you'd like to say before we end the interview? Um, just that really I hope that you know um, things change a little bit and that people in power listening to this or listen to a lot of the other things that I've spoken about and listening to your podcast I'm sure you've had many people on here have a similar view 
but actually common sense starts to sort of kick in a bit and people realise that these places are precious and once they're gone, they're gone forever. You know, there's no coming back once it's gone and once you've lost something like this, you know, like a lot of the other amazing venues, they have gone, but hey, you know, let's, let's finish on a bright note. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeff, thank you very much. And that was Neil chatting to uh, Jeff Horton in the 100 Club. Oh, speaking of Hortons, do you know that uh, Tim Hortons is coming to uh, is coming to uh, is coming to the UK? Were you aware of that? No. You lived in Canada, didn't you? I did. Tim Hortons is absolutely amazing. This sounds like an ad. <laughs> it, no, it's just just obviously the Horton thing. We'll talk. We'll talk about it off air. Um, but that was really that was really interesting. That was really illuminating. Well done, Neil. Oh, thanks. It's you, all down to Jeff. He's he's yeah. a character. He's a really, really interesting fella. Yeah. It'd be cool to do something like that with uh, Wheelands. Actually, we should talk about this again, but I have a great idea for an episode. Okay, well, let's talk about that again. Uh, in the meantime, uh, you sh- you, all those wonderful um, photographs Neil was talking about, you really need to go You need to go in to see a show in, in the 100 Club and actually go and see them for yourself. It is incredible. Absolutely. Um, the sheer breadth of yeah. of uh, artists that have got up there is incredible. So go, go on to the 100 Club's website. Like we, and, uh, we mentioned a, a handful. Yeah, yeah. Like, literally yeah. a handful. Like, that was, I mean, when we did our three gigs, that was just so such a pleasure. And it was just, yeah. like every second you saw something amazing so it's one of the most incredible places in the world and uh, it was really nice that we were able to do a little show about it um, okay well that's pretty much it for season 2 of the weekly general meeting thanks so much for listening and subscribing and commenting and sharing and all that jazz over the last uh, 12 episodes or so um, we're going to be back very soon what's that date again Neil? 26th of October 26th of October with a brand new um, very special uh, episode and uh, there'll be a, a new season of shows after that we're going to spend our time between now and then getting ready for all that in the meantime we're also we're going to be putting in classic episodes on the feed for you to listen to and catch up on if you haven't uh, heard the whole back catalogue yet um, thanks so much for listening uh, thanks to all the guests who have appeared on the show this season we've had so many brilliant ones I'm not going to name them all now but um, it's been uh, yeah it's been a lot of fun this this time around it has it's been amazing and do us a favour if you like the podcast feel free to recommend it to friends or if you have any feedback or if you reckon you know there's things that you like yeah. or don't like just let, let for, us know for example are our voices too similar are our, vo- are our voices annoying yeah yeah like would you like one of us to like pitch up a little bit I can't or down you can't oh, what oh, you, I can't are do you, either are you, is no, your I, voice as high as it goes it's pretty high to be fair <laughs> Um, yeah oh yeah okay well anyway Uh, cool alright well listen uh, thank you (laughs) (laughs) thanks very much for listening to the weekly general meeting you can check us out on the internet at the weekly GM on or is the handle across the board and our website is theweeklygm.com thanks to our producer Eilish Bracken for all the wonderful work she's done on the show this season thanks also to our sound engineer and mixer Emma Butt uh, she's been enormously helpful this time around and we really appreciate it um, that's pretty much it do you want to have the last word Neil? 